going to continue our series on equipped. Um, I want to thank the church and the, many of you who are praying for us. We went out to Oregon, the Oregon coast, uh, kind of mostly for a wedding. My son uh, got married, finally, um, finally married after five years of dating. And uh, they finally, they finally did it and they got married and God held off the rain. This time of year, Oregon coast, you are rolling the dice with the weather, let me tell you. Uh, and they got married literally on the beach, on the, on the, on the sand out there on the coast. Um, and the Lord held off the rain until after the wedding ceremony. That night it poured, the next day it rained all day. But God gave us just a little window, amen, for us to be able to, to, be able to do the wedding out there. So my son is married. So that's two, two of our kids, two, two married in one summer, all right? Uh, so needless to say, uh, we're pretty much broke. Um, and, uh, and I'm taking that spot over there by Walmart uh, this week, all right? Just so you know, that one spot, I'm kicking that dude out. I'm taking his spot, all right? So, we're going to be speaking this morning on being equipped, equipped for spiritual warfare. We'll start in 2 Timothy 3. This has been our, 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 our series and our theme. In 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, uh, notice what it says, all scriptures breathed out by God, and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction. For training, notice this, the idea of training, soldiers are trained, athletes are trained. Notice he says, for training in righteousness. He says that the man of God, we can even say it like this, as Paul told Timothy to be a good soldier of Christ, that the man of God, the woman of God, the servant of God, that the soldier of God may be complete. Notice this next statement, equipped for every good work. And as we've been doing this series, we're looking at, in particular, being equipped for spiritual warfare. And that you and I are in a spiritual battle. And we're in spiritual war. It's good versus evil, light versus darkness, lies versus truth. We're reminded as Peter spoke in his epistle, he said this, he says, be on guard, be sober, be aware. He says, be vigilant, Christians, because your enemy, he's as a, he, he's as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. We have an adversary. We know him, and his name is Satan. He's very powerful, and he is our enemy, and he is as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Jesus, in his words here on earth, he said this, the thief comes to do what? He says he comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. He says, but I have come that you may have life and that you may have it more abundantly. We are believers and followers of Jesus Christ, and because of that, understand that you have an adversary, you have an enemy, and you are at war. You're at spiritual war with Satan. And he is very powerful as we've been studying. We've been studying that, that Satan uh, is the most powerful created being. And he is at work. And you and I, we live behind enemy lines. And so we said this, you must know yourself. You must know where you're at in this battle. You must know that I'm not trying to discourage you here, but that you are no match for the enemy. You, in your own flesh and in your own abilities, you are no match for Satan. 
There is nothing that you can do in your own strength, in your own power. There is nothing, and we're going to see here in a moment, there, there is nothing that you and I can do to overcome the enemy. And by the way, he's doing a pretty good job here on planet Earth, isn't he? He's called the prince and power of the air. And so he is at work. He is at work. You must know yourself. You must know your adversary. Know that he is subtle and he uses lies and he's called the father of all lies. And we also studied that he disguises himself. He camouflages himself as an angel of of light. That, That Satan is very good at what he does. He has thousands of years of experience. And then we said this, you must know your advantages. You must know your advantages. And we've been looking at the armor of God. And last week, Pastor Richard spoke on taking that shield of faith, taking the shield of faith. And we're going to look here now in Ephesians chapter 6, where we see that Paul gives us the armor of God. Here's some advantages that we have as we're fighting this adversary, as Satan is at work and tries to steal, to kill, to destroy. He says, here's your armor that you must put on. Now remember, Paul, he's in prison in Rome when he's writing this letter. And picture in his mind, he sees every day these soldiers who are guarding him, and he looks at them and he sees that they have this armor from head to toe. They're covered in armor. And God begins to use this analogy in in Paul's life And Paul begins to then share this analogy to you and I. And he says, as these soldiers are prepared to go to battle, prepared to go to war, you and I must be prepared for spiritual warfare. And so he uses this Roman soldier, something that Paul was looking at each and every day of his life. And he sees this Roman soldier. He says, what a picture, what an analogy of what it looks like for you and I, a follower of Christ, to put on the armor. Something that we must do, something we must consciously do is to put on this armor. And let's read here in Ephesians 6 as Paul writes this letter. He says this, finally, he says, be strong in the Lord, in the strength of his might. He says, put on the whole armor, the full armor, the complete armor of God that you may be able to stand. Notice this against the schemes of the devil. He has many schemes, many tactics. He's very good at what he does, Paul warns. He says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Notice this, but it's against the rulers and against the authorities and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is real. This is real. Paul's saying this is a a real thing. He says it's not necessarily something we can see with our eyes, but it is something that is taking place. There is a lot of spiritual battle and spiritual warfare going on. He says, so therefore, notice the second time, take up what? The whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, And we went through each one of these items. He says, stand therefore. Here's how you stand. Here's the armor that you put on. He says, put on the belt of truth. He says, put on that that breastplate, that body armor, that breastplate of righteousness to protect the heart and guard your heart. And he says, as shoes 
for your feet. Remember the cleats. The Roman soldiers would wear those shoes. They were literally cleats that would grip the ground so that you're not losing your footing. Where we don't slip and fall and the enemy takes advantage of us. And having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. And he says, in all circumstances, take up this shield of faith. And you learned about that shield of faith last week. Which you can extinguish all of the flaming dart to the evil one. And then he says this, and take the helmet of salvation. We'll look at that for a few moments this morning. And the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. But he says, take the helmet of salvation, this full and complete armor of God. Understand this as well. Two times he says, put on all of it. Put on the full armor. The idea is this, is that this works cohesively together. That you can't just say, well, you know what? I've got a good shield. My faith is good. I've got a good shield. And it's important to have a good shield. But you still need to protect your head. You still need the helmet. You still need the breastplate. And by the way, you can have all, all of those things. You can have the shield. You can have the helmet and the breastplate plate and the belt of truth. But if you lose your footing in a battle and you lose your footing, you're going to give an opportunity for the enemy to take you out. The idea is this, is that all of this armor works together cohesively and that you need all of it. Not just some of it, not just one piece of it. Some might say, well, man, my faith is strong and I've got that shield of faith. Well, you need the helmet of salvation as well. Amen. And so I want you to notice just a little bit. There's some pictures of helmets, but I want you to notice the Roman soldier's helmet just for a moment. The helmet of salvation. We're going to talk a little bit about the helmet. There are two main purposes for this helmet, especially in the times of these Roman soldiers. The first one is this, not quite as obvious, but it is important. The first purpose, if you notice that little middle, it's kind of like a mohawk looking thing, you know? There was a reason for that. It wasn't just to be flashy. The reason why their helmets were made the way that they were, they would use literally like horse, horse hair, fine horse hair, they would even color them and dye them, is this, is so that you could identify who's on whose team in the battle. Does this make sense? By the way, for example, I can't even, shouldn't even admit this in church. I have grown up my whole life, and I've loved sports, but I've grown up my whole life being a Bears fan. <laughs> there is nothing to celebrate. But a bear's helmet will have a bear on it or a C, you know, for Chicago on the side of it so that you can identify who's on your team. Are you guys with me? That's what a helmet was for. The Roman soldiers, they were very decorative. They would put this on their helmet so that you could identify who's on whose team. So you can identify in battle who is friend and who is foe. We do it even in sports today and with, with our football teams and with helmets. You know, they'll, they'll have their colors, they'll have their emblems, they'll have their mascots so that you know when the quarterback drops back to throw a pass, he knows who's on my team, where, where's my receiver versus where's the defensive end. Do you understand the idea here is this? is that this Roman soldier would wear this helmet in battle and that they were able to identify one another in battle. 
Look at Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, and this is so important for us. You say, why is the helmet of salvation uh, so important for us in spiritual battle? Well, one, one main purpose is it identifies us with Christ. In Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, it says, In whom you also, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in him, speaking of Christ, you were sealed. Notice this, you're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. It means you're marked. You're marked with the Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we, acquire, uh, until we acquire the possession of it to the praise of his glory. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but the idea is this. The main emphasis I want you to get is that when you accepted Jesus Christ and you believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ, it says this, that you were marked with his seal, and that seal is the gift of the Holy Spirit, that you've been given the Holy Spirit. But here's the point, the helmet of salvation. At the moment of salvation, you are marked as a follower of Jesus Christ. You are sealed by the Spirit of God. And that is, the idea is this, that you identify with Christ and your identity is in Jesus Christ. And that is so important. That is so important to us. Many times, for example, if I were to ask about you or what do you do or who are you, who are you? Many times we'd immediately say, well, I'm a pastor, or I'm a football player, or I'm an athlete, or I, I do this a career, or what, I'm a teacher, uh, you know, fill in the blank, or I'm a mother, or I'm a husband, or I'm a father, or, you know, I'm a cowboy, or fill in the blank. But can I tell you something? That is not who you are. That may be what you do, but that's not who you are. I'm a police officer. I'm a fireman. No, that may be something that you do, but that's not who you are. So please, somebody understand this is important. Because if our whole life is wrapped up in what we do, can I tell you something? Then we have missed the boat because that does not identify us. What if that's stripped from you? Or what happens today that for many people, their whole life was this career, so to speak, and then they retire, then they're done. Now what? Yeah, right? Now what? Beyond that, the most important thing is this, is that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, your identity is in Christ. And he has marked you. Amen? And you are a follower of Christ. You know what it ought to be for us as a true follower of Jesus Christ? First and foremost, it's not whether I'm a husband. That's important. Whether I'm a father. Whether I'm a, an athlete. Or what career. Or whatever it is that I do. The most important thing is this because it's eternal. I am a child of the living God. Amen? I am a follower of Jesus Christ, and I am joint heirs with Jesus Christ, and my identity is not in what I do, and not necessarily who I am, but who I am in 
Christ Jesus. That's a big deal. Listen to me. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are marked with the Holy Spirit. You are a child of the living God. Your names are written in heaven. And listen, understand this. The Bible says you were joint heirs with Jesus Christ. You you belong to him and he belongs to you. And that, my friend, is far more important than anything else. Amen? He says, you are identified in Christ. Your identity is in Christ. You are sealed and marked by him. You have his colors on you. But understand this, that the moment you become a follower of Jesus Christ and your identity is in Christ, you now are an enemy of Satan. And you now have a target on your back. Do you understand this? And you are at spiritual conflict and spiritual war. The second reason, and this is the one that we know to be the most obvious, the reason why we wear helmets is for protection. Right? We wear helmets for protection. The Roman soldier wore that helmet to protect the brain, the mind, the control center of his, his body for protection. We use helmets in so many things. Now, I grew up 80s and 90s. We didn't have helmets for hardly anything back then. Now kids need like a helmet to get into the shopping cart at the store, you know. <laughs> I mean, things have changed a lot, you know. And, and by the way, it's all for the good, you know. Like, I get it. You know, it's probably why I'm a little off, you know. I've hit my hand one too many times. But helmets are important. Right? We know this. I mean, now kids can't even ride. You got to have a, we ride bikes. You have a helmet. You know, uh, you, ATVs, you wear a helmet. Motorcycles, you should do. I can't believe. I see guys riding around on motorcycles without a helmet. I'm thinking, wow. Maybe it's just because they just, they're like, well, if I do wreck this thing at 80, I don't really want to live, you know? <laughs> so I'm not wearing a helmet because I don't want to have to go through whatever I'm going to have to go through the rehab. That may be why. But I've seen them. Sometimes you go, man, that guy's crazy, you know, driving around a motorcycle. Most states have laws. you got to wear a helmet. Sports cars, you know, drivers, NASCAR, they wear helmets. Saved many lives. Football players wear helmets, right? We understand the purpose. The purpose is to protect the brain, the mind, that, like I said, the control center of the body. Helmets are important. The Roman soldier wore that helmet to protect himself from, from arrows and, and, and rocks and stones and, and obviously in hand-to-hand -hand combat, swords. And that helmet was there to protect them. My uncles went off to war in, in Vietnam and I, when they came back and they, as a child and then growing up and oftentimes being at their homes and seeing their uniforms, and some of them even had helmets. And I remember seeing the dents in their helmets to protect them from, in our military today, to protect from explosions and IEDs and all of these things. And it's there to protect them. But understand this, there was a deeper spiritual truth here, and that is this. That what Paul was emphasizing is this, and don't miss this, but the battlefield and spiritual warfare is primarily in the mind. How many of you would you agree with that? That most of the ways that the enemy works in our lives, and I, I want to reemphasize this, is that the devil cannot, he is not 
God. He is not all-knowing. And so the devil cannot read your mind. But can I say this? The devil can put thoughts into your mind, the enemy, the evil one. His primary battlefield and the area that he's going to work is in our minds. And that is why it is so important that we put on the helmet of salvation to protect us from Satan's onslaught as he will constantly use lies and deceit and he will constantly throw things at us. The battlefield in spiritual warfare is the mind. Let me remind you of something. We believe, I believe, Scripture teaches we're a trichotomy, that we're a body, we're, we're, we're threefold. We're a body, we're a soul, and we are spirit. And I'm not going to spend much on this, but I want to just throw this out here. The, the true, real meaning of the soul is the idea of this. In the original language, is like suki, or the idea is this, psyche. The word psyche, where we get the word what? Psychology, where we get the word the idea of psychology, the study of the mind. The body, the soul, and the spirit. And all three are important. And the Bible says that when God breathed in the man, he became a living soul. But he also gave us his spirit. And at salvation, our spirit comes alive. And so we're a body, we're a soul, and we are a spirit. And it is here in the soul, it is the mind, that, that person, who you are, who you are, your thoughts. This is where Satan enters. This is where Satan desires to work. Yes, he obviously attacks our flesh, and he does, and he tries to appeal to our flesh. We understand that, and there's a battle there. We will be speaking about that in a couple of weeks, and why it is important to have the sword of the Spirit. But understand this, that Satan primarily uses the mind. This is where he will battle us. And I want to just give us a handful of scriptures to help you this morning. Look at Romans chapter 7, because I want you to see that this is very clear in scripture. This is where most of our battle takes place in spiritual warfare. In Romans 7, 21 through 23, Paul says this, so I find it to be a law. He's even speaking of himself. That when I want to do right... Evil lies close at hand. He says, for I delight in the law of God. That's in the inner being. He says, that's my spirit, my inner being. He says, I delight in the law of God. He says, but I see in my members another law. What is it doing? It's waging war against the law of my, will you say it with me? Mind. You see what Paul said, where the battle is? He says, against the law of my mind. And he says, and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members or in my body, in my flesh. He says, understand this. Think about this. That yes, our flesh desires to sin, but it is the mind that chooses whether or not we will follow through with that sin. Does that make sense? I cannot say, well, well, I just, I, I couldn't help it. I just couldn't help it. Somehow my hands just sinned without me even knowing about it. No, that's not going to happen. You have to think about it first. Does this make sense? I don't know how I took that candy bar. It just somehow, without me even thinking about it, somehow it just ended up in my pocket. 
That $50 that I took out of the offering box, that I just took out of the offering box in the back. No one ever did that, okay? I'm not. But that $50 I took, it's an illustration. The $50, I, you know what? I don't know how it got there out of the offering box. Now, there's a lot of criminals that would love for that to work in court, right? But the idea is this, is we, our mind controls our flesh. Does, are you with me, church? Please, somebody say amen. We have potluck today, and I want to get down to lunch, okay? <laughs> we cannot say that our flesh just did something on its own. Our mind is where the battle is, one. The battle over the flesh is won in the mind. Romans 8, 5 and 6. Again, notice what he says here. He says, for those who live according to their flesh, here's what I was just speaking of, set their what? Say it with me. Minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, set their what? Minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For example, let me just throw this out here, just for an example. Even today, most of you, unless you're a child and your parents forced you, most of you, you made a conscious choice and a conscious decision. You actually got up, whether it's early or not for you, but you got up, you did some type of preparation. You made a conscious choice and you drove to this property and you walked through those doors. Amen, right? That was something that took effort, that took initiative. The idea here is, is that is the mind of the spirit. Something in your spirit says, I need this. I need to go there. I need this. I need the word. I need to get into fellowship. Whatever that may be, I need to worship God. I need this time. You, you chose, in the mind, you chose to consciously make your flesh move to get ready, come here, to get in the car. You put forth an effort. But listen to me, there was a conscious choice and decision. Have you ever sometimes just said, oh, I just can't do it today, and I'm just, I'm, I'm sleeping in. I tried that one week, and my wife said, you can't. You're the pastor, now go. <laughs> but how many, honestly, have we not been there? We struggled with it. Maybe the week we've had, maybe we're exhausted, maybe we're not feeling, whatever it may be. And there's obviously times that we can't. God understands it. You made a conscious choice and a decision, and it was in the mind. And part of that was the Spirit was saying, you need this. But there's times where the Spirit, Paul says in Romans 7, he goes, the things that I know I should do, I end up not doing. And the things I shouldn't do, I end up doing. And he says, I have this war within me. But in this passage, he says that the battlefield of the flesh takes place in the mind. And submitting to the Spirit and the Holy Spirit and yielding to the Holy Spirit. Living by the, by the Holy Spirit. When the Spirit says to do it, do it. Versus when the flesh says to do it. But the choice, that free will, takes place in the mind. So let me, because we just have a few moments. Some quick, whether you want to call them pointers. Some, some helpful scripture that will help you. Here's some techniques to win the battle of the mind. The Bible says we wrestle not against flesh and blood. The Bible tells us here in Ephesians that Satan has many tactics and schemes. We can call them his, as we're thinking of wrestling, I'm a wrestling coach, I call it technique. 
Satan has his, his, his technique. And we're going to look at just a handful of scriptures that I call our, our counters to, to Satan's attacks. You have to counter the attacks that Satan will have in the mind. The first one is this, in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 8. The first one is this, the helmet of salvation. What all does this, what is the idea? He uses in 1 Thessalonians 5, 8, he mentions this helmet again. Notice this, he says, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober. Having put on the breastplate of faith, he speaks of the breastplate, but notice this. He speaks to this church who's under tremendous persecution. The church at Thessalonica was under a huge amount of persecution. And he says this, and for a helmet, notice what he says, the hope of salvation. The hope of salvation. The helmet of salvation is, is yes, that we put on this helmet so that we can overcome Satan's attacks of the mind. And he uses this interesting phrase, the hope of salvation. Or can I just shorten it, just call it hope. One thing that the devil will try to do to you is he will try to strip you of all hope. One of his favorite, favorite tools is this, discouragement. He will try to discourage you. Despair. We use the term depression. Satan will do all that he can do to discourage you, to put you into a place where you think there is hope, no hope. And by the way, there's a lot of folks in this world who have little or no hope. He will use discouragement, despair, depression, He'll steal it from you. He will steal your hope. Does this make sense? What does he want to do? He wants to, to steal, to kill, destroy. You know, one of the things he wants to do is he wants to steal your peace. He wants to steal your joy. And he will do all that he can do to bring despair into your life. Let me give you an example in Scripture. In just a moment, we're going to read this passage in Job 19. But this is so important. What did the enemy do to Job? He stripped Job of everything. He lost all 10 of his children to what I believe the scripture is speaking of as some type of tornado, a huge storm. He lost all 10 of his children. Another messenger comes and he loses, he loses basically all of his financial wealth, all of his financial stability. He loses it all. He loses the support of his wife who says, why are you retaining your integrity? Curse God and die. He loses his health. Bible says from head to toe, he's covered in, in boils and he's in agony and he's suffering. And then, the, it's a long story, but then his friends come and his own friends begin to basically betray him and they begin to accuse him and say, well, what secret sins do you have in your life? And I'm basically paraphrasing the book of Job. But here's what the enemy tried to do to Job. Tried to put Job in a position where Job had no hope, a place of despair. And Job did struggle. There's times he said, I wish I never would have been born when you read the book of Job, and he struggled. But one passage that stands out to me in Job chapter 19, look at these words, verses 25 through 27. He says this, what got Job through this, through this spiritual war that he was in with the enemy? What was it that helped get him through this? 
when Satan tried to bring despair and discouragement into his life, listen to what he says, for I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh, he says, I don't understand it. I don't comprehend it, but I'm trusting and I'm believing in God. He says, yet in my flesh, I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and, and not another. You know what? The one word that comes to my mind is this. You know what got Job through it? Hope got Job through it. The hope that one day I will stand before God. One day I will see God. And everything that I'm going through, all this pain and all this agony and all of this suffering and and all that I'm going through, and even though I'm in this pit of despair, you know what got Job out of that pit of despair? It was one word. It was hope that I will see him, that there will be a day that I will see my Redeemer. And I know that my Redeemer lives. Amen? And I know that I will stand and I will see him and I will see him in my flesh and I will look upon his face. That was the one thing that got Job through it. And may I say to you this morning, I don't know what you're going through or what, you, what trials you may be under and what weight and what pressure you may be feeling. But can I tell you something? Just one little glimmer of hope can change everything. Amen, church? By the way, we should be bearers of hope. We should be bringing hope to others that people put into our lives. This is what Isaiah said. Isaiah had a difficult road as a prophet. But Isaiah says in Isaiah 26.3, he says, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts. The word trust is the same word that we get hope because he hopes in you. It's interesting Paul uses this helmet of salvation, but he also at the same time calls it the hope of salvation, hope. Notice another counter, counter to Satan's attacks is this. In 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 5. So one counter is this, hope. You guys got that? Hope, the hope of salvation. Here's another counter to Satan's attack in the spiritual warfare of the mind is this. We must take captive every thought. Take captive every thought. Listen to what he says. Paul says, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. We can't use our fists. Notice that we can't, we, we can't do that. He says, but we have, they have divine power to destroy strongholds. And that will be a whole other message. But he says, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. Now notice this phrase, and we take captive every, we, we take every thought captive to obey Christ. He says, you must take every thought captive. Understand, and we're going to see in another passage in just a moment, we have to filter everything through the word of God. We have to take every thought captive. Listen to me, Satan, the the, the battlefield is in the mind, and he's going to put all kinds of thoughts. He's going to throw all kinds of lies at you and understand that he will do all that he can do to rob you of your joy, to rob you of peace, to bring you to a place of discouragement, depression, despair. 
And hope is so important. But also, you have to take captive every thought to the obedience of Christ. When the devil says to us, lie about this. Lie. Lie on the interviewer. Lie. Exaggerate. We have to take that thought captive. You can't get the job if you don't lie. You can't get that date if you don't lie. So you get the date and then they find out you're a liar. Good luck with that one, right? (laughs) You got to take that thought captive. Cheat, you know, fill in the blank. The enemy will, will throw so many things you have. Here, you need to cheat. You need to lie. You have to take those thoughts captive. How about this? You're nothing or I'm nothing. I'm worthless. I'm a failure. You have to take those thoughts captive. No one loves you. No one cares about you. You have to take those thoughts captive. Are we listening, church? God doesn't care about you. God doesn't love you. Take those thoughts captive. We just had communion this morning. The Lord literally laid down his life. His body was ripped to shreds. His beard was ripped out of his face. A crown of thorns beat into his brow. He took cat and nine tail across his back. His organs were exposed. He hung upon a cross. And the Bible says that he was so marred and that his body was so ravished that you couldn't even recognize him. He didn't even look human. And he did that because he loves you. And don't let the devil lie to you and tell you that God doesn't love you. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes upon him will have everlasting life. Amen? But we have to take those thoughts captive because the enemy is going to lie to you. And he's going to tell you that that God doesn't love you and that God doesn't care about you. You have to take those thoughts captive. William James was a psychologist years back. And other people borrowed this statement Dr. David Jeremiah has a sermon on this, and I've heard this statement, but it's a very powerful statement. He says something like this. You are not what you think you are, but what you think you are. Want me to say it one more time? You're not what you think you are, but what you think you are. The way we think has tremendous implications in our everyday life. Amen? The battle of the mind. I like to say it like this. Our thoughts will determine our actions, and our actions will determine our outcome. But it all starts in the mind. To take captive every thought. I was reading a little bit this week about 
Charles Haddon Spurgeon, he was called the Prince of Preachers, amazing pastor, preacher. London, England. How many of you have ever heard of Spurgeon? Some of the older generation, younger crowd, uh, he, he was a hero of the faith. He preached to millions in his life. He would literally preach sometimes 10 times a week. He had what's called the Metropolitan Tabernacle. And they would pack that thing out with thousands and he would preach. You'd have to have tickets and they would stand outside. What a lot of people don't know is he was the prince of preachers and he was, he's an author. He wrote hundreds and hundreds of books. He had a school that trained pastors and, as I said, an author and renowned speaker. It was actually one event that really kind of changed his life as a young pastor when they were, the church just exploded there in London and when they were building and trying to expand the, the Metropolitan Tabernacle, there was a huge music hall that had just opened and they decided we will rent, we will use this music hall. And so they used the music hall and it held over a little over 10,000. And think about this, back in that day, back in the, you know, years and years ago in, in London, I mean, that's an amazing thing. And the people were standing on the outside and doors and windows open so they could try to hear Spurgeon preach. Well, while he got up and he was getting ready to speak to the crowd and to speak and open the word of God, some pranksters who thought it would be funny started to yell, fire, fire, fire. And it literally completely put everyone into fear and panic. And everyone began to run and everyone began to... And seven people lost their lives, were trampled to death. 28 were put in, in critical condition and hundreds of others were badly injured. His wife, I believe her name was Suzanne, said he was never the same after that, that, that whole event. In fact, the newspapers published it in London. Newspapers, of course, they blamed Spurgeon. The enemy began to use that. And, and a long story short is this, is that Spurgeon, this great preacher, began to struggle with depression and discouragement. He, in his own writing, said that he actually preached one-third, he he. he, he one-third less of the time because so many times he was in, in, in depression. Many people believe that he actually had clinical depression where it was actually something that was physically wrong with him. He, he had uh, gout. He had a lot of health issues. He had gout. He had arthritis. He had a kidney infection, a, a type of kidney disease the burning of the kidneys, and he was in extreme pain. So think about this the extreme pain that he's in, but then just the weight of the ministry and then the attacks, and he was constantly publicly attacked by, 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 by people who hated Spurgeon. But may I say this, he was greatly used by God. But Spurgeon in many of his writings speaks of the importance of hope and trust and faith in Christ, and he was even felt so terrible because he battled and struggled with discouragement. I guess what I'm trying to say is this, is that, that all of us at times will struggle with discouragement. And you have to take these thoughts captive. That the enemy, no matter who you are, he will attack your mind and you must take every thought captive. Look at Romans 12, 1 and 2. We're almost out of time. So Romans 12, 1 and 2, notice this. Here's something else you need to do. So hope, the hope of salvation. Take captive every thought. 
And notice this, Romans 12, 1 and 2, we need to renew our minds or reprogram our minds. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Now, notice this, by the renewal of your what? Mind. That by the testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and is acceptable and perfect. He says you must renew your mind. And boy, we'll have to speak of this more in a couple weeks when we talk about the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. But the idea is this, is that you must reprogram your mind. We, we often think the way the world wants us to think, or we want to, as Solomon warns in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, Solomon says, don't lean on your own understanding, your own intellect. He says, but in all your ways, acknowledge the Lord, acknowledge God. He will direct your paths. Let's be honest. The struggle is that we live here in this world. We have the world system, and we have the way that the world does things, but the way that the world does things is not always the way God wants us to do things. And so we must renew our minds. We must reprogram our minds to be in tune with the word of God. That's why it is important that you're here today to hear the word of God. That's why it's important to know the scriptures, to be hearing the word of God, to be listening and reading to the scriptures, to be saturated in the word of God so that we can be reprogrammed because the world tells us to live one way, but God tells us to live another way. So we take every thought captive, but we also must renew our minds. Because understand this, think about it like this. Satan is the prince and power of the air. He's called the God of this world. So if he's the God of this world, understand this. He's the one behind the world system in the way the world thinks. Am I making sense? And so if this is how the world thinks and operates, that is... That is complete opposite of what God expects of us. Are, are you with me, church? Satan will lie to you. You must take every thought captive. It is sad, but he's told many people it's better for you to take your own life than to Continue to trust God. You must take that thought captive. You must renew your mind. One last passage, Philippians 4, 8, and 9, because we're out of time. Don't lean on your own understanding. Acknowledge God. But look at Philippians 4, 8, and 9. He says this, finally, brothers, Paul speaking to church. He uses the word mind and joy and, and things. Some people call this the psychology book of the Bible in Philippians, the spiritual psychology book of the Bible. Philippians, I'd encourage you to read it. Philippians 4, 8, 9, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence if there's anything worthy of praise, he says, think about these things. And what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice and these things, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. To keep it very short and simple and sweet, 
Most of the time, what we do is we start stinking thinking, right? And stinking thinking leads us down a really bad path. The devil loves to get us with some stinking thinking. And we have to take every thought captive, amen? We have to renew our minds. We need to have that hope of salvation and know that, listen, that there is hope, that in Christ Jesus there is hope. And we also have to quit the stinking thinking. And he says, find whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever can be praiseworthy. Find those things. And he says, dwell on those things. Think on these things. And I don't even have time to really go in and teach and preach that. But here's the thing is oftentimes we get caught up in this trap of stinking thinking. And we begin to go down that path. And stinking thinking robs us of our joy. Come on now, right? Robs us, steals. And Satan just sits there laughing and says, I got them right where I want them. And so he says, put on the helmet of salvation to overcome the, the schemes of the enemy and understand this. If we get nothing else out of this, just at least remember this, that the spiritual warfare is primarily where? Where does that battle take place? In our minds. Take every thought captive. And all God's people said, amen. Let's stand and pray. Lord, I